Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. In today's episode, we talk to Julia Friedrich, a research fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, about her study looking at Ukrainian perspectives on peace, and to Alexei Malnik, co-director, foreign relations and international security programs, coordinator of international projects at the Kyiv-based Razmakov Center, about how the lessons and recommendations from the study stand up to the realities of the current conflict in Ukraine. Before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, a war had been ongoing since 2014 in part of Ukraine's eastern regions, the Donbass. After intense fighting in 2014 and 15, the conflict simmered on with low but steady levels of violence. Frameworks designed to solve the stalemate were fiercely contested and ultimately failed. Before the invasion this February, Ukrainians were increasingly divided over how to resolve existing conflicts and which trade-offs they were willing to accept to achieve peace. Julia's study, which forms the centre of our discussion in this episode, focuses on the attitudes of two groups of people that have been severely impacted by the conflict, veterans of the Donbass conflict and internally displaced people residing in eastern Ukraine. Even though the situation has fundamentally changed since Julia's study and continues to do so daily, the attitudes of these people at that time can tell us some things about what to expect from the millions more displaced people and ex-combatants that the current conflict is creating. Today, there are many millions more internally displaced people and veterans than at the time of this research. When the study was being conducted, there were 1.5 million internally displaced people in Ukraine, many of which still had family in the so-called People's Republics. There were more than 400,000 veterans of the Donbass War before February 2022. As we mentioned, current figures will have no doubt increased since we recorded this conversation back in late May, but the points discussed remain as relevant and urgent as ever. I'm Jessica Summers, Head of Communications at Safer World. And I'm Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. So, Julia, on your study, at times the focus on leaders has minimized the inclusion of Ukrainian people in discussions about the conflict. And your study tries to address this. Could you briefly outline what you did? Sure. So essentially, we asked them. (laughs) Uh, So what we did was to conduct a mix of of interviews and surveys, which actually turned out to be a good idea because uh, the results were quite different, actually, between the interviews and the surveys. But so I uh, traveled around what was then the government controlled areas of Donbass and interviewed veterans, uh, internally displaced persons, civil society activists, uh, government officials. And then we also, with the help of the Razumkov Center, conducted uh, surveys of the general population, but also among veterans and among internally displaced persons in uh, the five eastern Ukrainian regions. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose internally displaced persons and veterans specifically? So because they are two of the groups that are the most affected or that were at the time the most affected by um, the conflict and that they are, they are two very um, 
sort of different groups. So I uh, previously I conducted research on, on veterans already and sort of the societal implications of their reintegration into society after fighting. Um, and it it became clear that uh, sort of there, there was an interesting dynamic between these two groups um, because, you know, some people might be veterans and IDPs, you know, if they come mm -hmm. from Crimea or from what is now the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. And they, they, they were both sort of had their whole life turned upside down by this conflict, but in, you know, in, in very different ways. And sort of, it was in, it, I, I, I thought it would be interesting to understand what, what would be different about their experiences and what, you know, what different conclusions they might draw um, from, from what they experienced. And so, and so what were the main findings then? Um, so what was interesting, perhaps, was where they agreed, both veterans and IDPs. And so one of the areas that was, you know, similar, especially in the surveys, um, but it was also kind of already in the interviews because we could see this, um, the area where they were all uh, more or less of the same opinion was the, the questions about political inclusion, you know, so we had questions like if someone wants to get involved in, you know, uh, the city council or the city administration, you know, they can do that. And the majority of throughout groups, the majority said, no, they can't do that. Um, or we had questions, you know, about whether the Ukrainian government acts in your interests or your local government acts in your in the interests of people like you and throughout uh, and across groups. Everyone said, uh, no, that's not the case. So there was a strong sense of uh, sort of disillusionment, uh, insufficient political inclusion and, and sort of no sense of empowerment. So no sense that like, if I want to change something, I, I can. Um, another area of similarity was that there was a certain amount of, of pragmatism uh, across groups. So at the time, um, this was a more prevalent issue perhaps, um, but we had one question in the survey about uh, Sort of, would you be willing to accept Russian as official language if that meant that there would be peace in return? Um, and uh, and across, I mean, even veterans, not by a large majority, but even veterans were saying, yeah, I mean, if that's what it takes to make peace, then, you know, whatever, essentially. And so I think this is a certain sense of pragmatism that is perhaps a bit uh more specific to, to Eastern Ukraine. Um, but then uh, the main finding, of course, <laughs> was that they disagree over many issues and they kind of, yeah, that the they had drawn opposite conclusions actually from their experience in the conflict. And I, yeah, just to recall, this is all prior to February, 2022, right? But at the time, um, of course, there were a range of opinions within the groups, but you could tell that for internally displaced persons who often had uh, families still in the um, so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, uh, they were very much focused on somehow getting to peace and somehow, you know, being able to reunite with their families. And so we saw also a strong correlation or a stronger correlation uh, towards, you know, making more or less whatever kind of compromise, just to be able to have a normal life with your family again. And this was stronger if you were still in touch with relatives. And for veterans, I would say it's more, it's it's really about individual experiences. So some of the veterans who were also internally displaced from uh, these uh, so-called republics, um, they were quite empathetic towards the population in, in these republics, more so actually than some of the activists that we spoke to. But um, 
Um, and so they were perhaps, but they were also, you know, they just had a different mindset. They said, okay, but compromise isn't going to lead us to peace. Uh, you know, it's not going to work. Um, and other veterans uh, were sort of filled with this sense of, with this wish for revenge in a way, um, which, you know, they also, which was also understandable uh, if they told you, you know, the stories about their, how their comrades were being killed and, you know, also kind of a, perhaps a natural kind of reaction. But so I, I, yeah, I think the most interesting um, finding was that, you know, just because you were in a conflict, in the same conflict, uh, armed conflict, that doesn't mean that you draw, you know, the same conclusion. And you both belong to, to vulnerable groups at the time. Exactly. So even if there are these similarities, you perceive conflict in a different way. I mean, I would like to, to hear a little bit more about this diversity of conflict experience. What is it that you mean by that in the study? So I think essentially it means that not every individual experience neatly maps onto conflict fault lines, right? I mean, this should perhaps be a no-brainer, but I think we tend to forget about it because we want to understand conflict in a very simple you know, way. <laughs> um, and uh, so what I mean by that, for example, is that, you know, some IDPs would have had very positive experiences with veterans because they would perceive them as, you know, protectors um, against sort of a danger. Um, whereas others who maybe, you know, fled at a later point, then of course you were, if you were a civilian at the time in the um, so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, you were, of course, on the other side of the battlefield, right? So, so you know, this relationship is not necessarily straightforward. And, and one IDP in an interview, I remember she said to us, uh, you know, soldiers get paid to wage war. So essentially, they get paid to destroy our lives. I don't want them to have any say in whatever solution there will be to this conflict. Um I mean, I think these are all dynamics that now will have shifted. And I think Alexi can say more about that. But um, at the time, you know, there were these kind of resentments or among veterans, sometimes there was quite a sense of suspicion also towards the people that came from these territories, you know, and, and with good reason, because, you know, it wasn't always clear who was a civilian, who was maybe a Russian saboteur. You know, these are these are not, um, this wasn't always uh, clear cut. So... Uh, I think that's what I mean, uh, that, you know, not not every individual experience is kind of, you know, fits into a roster that we have in our head. And I think, I mean, even even if you say, and, and I agree, of course, um, we keep saying that all of this is a no-brainer. Every person experiences conflict in a different way, depending on a number of circumstances. But I think in this case, having been there and having asked people and having chosen specifically these two, I mean, you know, largely defined groups um, of people, I think, I think you were able to do something that that potentially can help us understand what the situation is now. So, so I would move on to you, Alexei, now and ask you. Uh, I mean, th this study, uh, Yulia's study, was conducted before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the perspectives of the study surely still have some resonance. So how do you think the situation has changed? Uh, well, uh, I can hardly find any example of a country where people would be entirely happy with their governments, except probably North Korea or I don't know to what extent in the Russian Federation, and I think it, it's rather common when Ukrainians are not 
satisfied with their government. They complain about the government not paying enough attention to their needs. Well, that, that's true, and uh, I think that uh, the Ukrainian government uh, really had and still has some communication problems uh, with uh, their uh, society. Uh, having said that, uh, I think the, the most important uh, to remember that uh, there was actually no discrimination of original discrimination between uh, people in the east or people in the center or on the west of Ukraine. So uh, if uh, people in the eastern regions of Ukraine or IDPs complain about the government not taking good care of them, it doesn't mean that there was any uh, intention of discrimination and uh, it just, uh, in general, the, the problem of uh, government performing its mission, uh, its social mission, first of all. Uh, whether it's changed now, uh, the situation changed. And uh, as I said, uh, there is uh, no time for discussion. And also we can uh, give a credit to President Zelensky, who acted like a real statesman. He performs uh, appeal to, to nation almost every evening. And that, that's something probably that make people uh, more or less comfortable. Do you think the issues that were raised in the report to which you contributed are still relevant? Definitely. Uh, as I said before, despite uh, so dramatic changes, some of the issues will remain, remain relevant or become relevant at a certain moment of uh, the war or the peace process. And also, I think this report is uh, important because uh, it actually presents uh, an issue, an idea of the future uh, problems or uh, future uh, tasks that uh, any government or the civil society organization will face. At any case, the society will be divided and there will be, there will be different opinions about the best way for conflict resolution or about the compromises. So I think at least, if not the, the whole report, but, but some parts of that and definitely the methodology applied to this study will be absolutely necessary and, and relevant in the future. So, for instance, it seemed that quite a lot of people didn't think the Ukrainian government acted in their interest or didn't listen. Do you think that has changed and why? Yeah, I, I fully agree with Yulia uh, regarding uh, the situation that it's changed dramatically. But uh, at the same time, I would say that perhaps that's something that looks irrelevant to the current situation will become relevant again. And that, that's why important, I think, the, the, this, this report has been made and the, the policy recommendations are somewhere in the file. Uh, second, I think it, it's still absolutely relevant that uh, the government in his policies and his not, not just uh, social policies, but the communication policy 
should take into account different uh, parts of the society, different audiences. And of course, uh, president uh, uh, usually speaks uh, to the nation, but also in this nation, there are certain uh, segments of the society, they need a different level or different kind of messages. And this is something that is relevant uh, to any kind of situation. And talking about this civil society, again, I fully agree with Yulia that uh, the local expertise is crucial because many international organizations, well-skilled and well-paid, come to Ukraine or to any other uh, places with their approach uh, brought from absolutely different part of the world and trying to implement and expecting to get the same probably positive result they uh, achieved somewhere. But it's just a common sense that uh, you have to understand the local environment. And the best way to understand the local environment is to cooperate, to cooperate with the civil society organizations, uh, local think tanks. And that, that's, that's basically, I think, that can be added to uh, the recommendations uh, for the, of this report. Julia? So we, of course, we had written a bunch of policy recommendations that we then decided to exclude from the report because it was just clear that the context has so fundamentally changed that um, they, you know, they, we would need to write new recommendations uh, once, you know, you, there's a situation in Ukraine where um, where all these these issues of sort of post-conflict reconciliation, social cohesion, you know, where they become more pressing, uh, I would say. But one um, recommendation that I think, uh, you know, is still valid um, is that, you know, I mentioned that there was a disconnect, a slight disconnect between what, you know, activists that we interviewed said and some of the survey results that we received. And I think especially foreign donors, you know, they have a tendency to talk to one or two actors, um, usually, you know, very educated uh, English speaking civil society activists, and then they feel that they have a sense of, you know what the situation is. I'm I'm oversimplifying here, but you know not in every case actually. Um, and I mean this is not to say that the civil society organizations don't do important and, and work, uh, but at least in Ukraine, um, civil society tends to have you know a rather unanimous opinion. And this I, I think donors should should be encouraged to to talk to more than one or two people and to actually go to the places where they fund these these projects. I mean there were over I mean there were zillions of peace building projects funded in Ukraine and not all of them actually addressed actual conflict lines. Um, so I think yeah I think it would be important to kind of uh, get a better sense of what what's happening uh, on the ground to for donors or for international actors to make um, to make better uh, better policy. And then another thing, of course, um, is the peace process, which was very, very, very far removed from people's experiences. Um, I mean, if you can even call it a peace process, the Minsk process at the time, which didn't really, you know, serve serve anyone, um, really. Uh, but it was very, I mean, one of the problems was that it was, it just, it didn't have any legitimacy among the people because the Minsk agreements were so contested, but also the process was so, you know, cut off from, from, you know, everyday concerns. And even if something 
was achieved, you know, among humanitarian lines, um, then people wouldn't necessarily see that this was an outcome of something that was negotiated for them. So I, I do think that it would be super important to involve them more, um, to find a way to have, you know, civil society consultations. I mean, this is not the this is not the only example where we have a, a difficult peace process and where you will need to to somehow include other voices, right? So um, I do think there could be that there is room to learn um, how you know how to how to include people and give them a sense that you know policy isn't something that's happening to them, but they, they can actually you know take part, they can voice their concerns. Yeah, which is a challenge a little yes. bit everywhere in the world, but <laughs> probably yes. much much stronger in in Ukraine now. Thank you very much for joining us. That's all the time we have today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts, by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.